Well, John begins in verse 18 of 1 John chapter 2. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now little children abide in him. That when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Though church attendance in the United States has declined in recent years, America is not becoming a more secular nation. A survey done by Pew Research reports that a whopping 75% of today's Americans still see themselves as spiritual. In fact, the fastest growing segment of our population now identifies as spiritual but not religious. These folks might no longer adhere to a particular faith, but they still believe in an afterlife and in supernatural phenomena and in some sort of higher power. This is the case in all of today's industrialized nations. Did you know that in Russia there are now more occult healers than there are medical doctors. In France, 38% of the population believes in astrology. Among the Swiss, 35% agree that some fortune tellers really can foresee the future. And apparently, nearly everyone in Japan is careful to have their new car blessed by a Shinto priest. Superstitions, occult practices are common in the world today. Even today... Even at the beginning of the 21st century, in an increasingly technical and secular world, four out of every five people still belong to a religion. That's 80%. The truth is, despite all of our scientific advancements and our technological breakthroughs, you can't shut off the longing in the human heart for meaning and for purpose. Our Creator has planted a homing device in our chests. 
that keeps us searching and groping until we find our way back to Him. My point is, planet Earth is still an actively spiritual place, exactly as the Bible predicted. In today's passage, John acknowledges humanity's inclination towards spirituality and even its rise in the last days. But he stresses that all spiritual activity has to be evaluated in light of the truth. Our inherent spirituality can be manipulated by false teachers. It can set us up for deception. The inner longing our Creator has put in our hearts, this inner desire for, to know God and, and to experience a transcendent meaning, this has to be tethered to God's truth or deceivers can come in and manipulate us. And there is a truth. John reveals it to us in our passage. We begin this morning in verse 18. John pins these words, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Now realize, the first disciples who walked and talked with Jesus, who were part of his first coming to earth, believed that they would also see his second coming. They were expecting him to invade their world again. Both Peter and Jude spoke of their day as the last time. Paul, James, the writer of Hebrews, and again Peter, uses the term the last days. Here John takes this expectation still further. Alive after the others have died, he believes that he's living in the last hour. The Bible has much to say about the last hour. Understand, biblical history is Jewish history. God chose Israel to be his people. His plan was to save the Gentile world through the promises that he made to Israel. Daniel was a Hebrew prophet living at the end of the 6th century B.C. He was given a vision of the remainder of Hebrew history. From his time until the end of time, there would be a period of 490 years. Those years began with the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. 483 years later, Messiah would come to his people. Calculate Daniel's prediction, and it was fulfilled the very day Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Afterwards, only seven years remained for God to fulfill his promises to Israel and to save the world. Now remember, the same author who wrote the book we're studying, the Apostle John, wrote another letter that described in great detail what would happen in these final seven years. John called it the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the last book in your New Testament. And it depicts the Lord's, turn and its precede, Lord's return and its preceding judgments. As John said in verse 17, the world is passing away and the lusts of it. This final seven years will hasten that passing with cataclysmic judgments on a global scale. God's fury will shake, it will rock the earth's foundations. John says that during those final seven years, humanity's rebellion will reach a pinnacle. All the nations will gather under a sinister leader known as the Antichrist. At first, he'll come as a man of peace. He'll have answers. He'll capture the world's imagination. 
And he'll use the values described in verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, to capture the allegiance of most of humanity. People from all over the world will wear his seal on their forehead or on their right hand. We're not sure whether it's a tattoo or perhaps an embedded chip, but the Bible says it's in the form of three digits, a six, a six, and a six. The Antichrist will call on all the world to worship him. And with that singular act of unmitigated gall, God will have had enough. Judgments will rain down from heaven. Shortly thereafter, Jesus will split the eastern sky, destroy the Antichrist with one blaze of his glory, crush this global revolt, rule the earth a thousand years, and in the process, restore to it the paradise that God intended. But a careful reading of Daniel 9 reveals that God intends for an undetermined gap of time to exist after the first 483 years and before the final seven. Daniel foresaw two events that would occur inside that gap. Jesus would be crucified and the temple would be toppled. I believe there is another event that lies in that gap. The church is born and grows, and gets raptured. And after Jesus rescues his church, the countdown begins again on the final seven years predicted by Daniel. Now realize, when John and his fellow New Testament writers penned their letters, they were cognizant of where they were on God's timeline. They were still in that undisclosed gap of time. How long it would be until the end, they weren't sure. But in their minds, it couldn't be long. Thus, they use terms like the last time and the last days and even the last hour. They saw themselves as standing on eternity's threshold. If we had been there, we would have drawn the same conclusion. Of course, 2,000 years later, and counting, we recognize that the gap between Jesus' first and second comings has now been a sizable gap of time. But we are still in the last hour. In fact, if it was the last hour for John, then today for us, it must be the last split second. Remember in Matthew 24, just days before Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples asked him, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. It's interesting. For the thousand years between the giving of the Messianic promise to King David until Jesus' actual coming, not a single person came on the scene and said they were the Messiah. Yet over the 2,000 years since Jesus' death and resurrection, we've seen a long parade of Messianic imposters making that very claim. And here John says that a sign that we're in the last hour is that there'll be many false Christs will set the stage for the Antichrist. I read recently that 40% of the art sold to galleries and collectors around the world are actual forgeries. To me, that's a staggeringly high percentage, almost half. And yet I wonder if the spiritual deception that goes on today isn't occurring at an even higher rate. As we grow closer to Jesus' return, it only makes sense that the devil will try harder to ply his deception. 
And this is what concerns John in our text. Notice what he calls his church, verse 18, little children. He loved these people. His responsibility to the believers under his care paralleled the responsibility of a father toward his children. It was John's job to protect his spiritual kids at all costs. John knows the Antichrist will be preceded by a proliferation of teachers who are both anti-God and anti-Christ. In fact, John was watching a rise of this deception in his day, and it has only escalated since. And sadly, people today are just as vulnerable to the deception as in John's day, if not more so. For when a person or a group of people pride themselves in their spirituality like we do today, yet lack God's criteria for what's right and wrong, true and false, they put themselves in peril. Listen, a spirituality untethered to God's truth becomes Satan's opportunity to deceive and to ultimately destroy. And this is why John wants his readers to understand the nature and the origin of the Antichrist in his day. He writes of them, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be be made manifest that none of them were of us. Often a perpetrator of false doctrine starts out, in a sound, Bible-believing church. Yet they become proud. And they bend or they stray or they deviate from God's truth. Rather than be faithful, their goal is to be novel. Instead of helping folks, they only want to draw a crowd. In place of glorifying God, they inflate their own ego. Rather than bow to the authority of Scripture Many a person has exalted their own reason and intellect and clung stubbornly to their own interpretations. Let me ask you, do you approach the Bible to inform your thinking or do you approach the Bible to get support for your thinking? The birth of a heretic occurs when a person uses the Bible to justify a prejudice or to support their own supposition. Jesus is saying, I mean, John here is saying, Jesus said it too, but John here is saying that if they had been of us, they would have had a different attitude. They would have been humble, honest, sincere, seeking, and not self-serving. Realize there is a difference between a backslider and a heretic. Look deep into the heart of a backslider And you'll find Jesus there. You might have to dig deep. You might have to look behind a lot of stuff that's gotten in the way. But he's there. And he's calling that backslider back home. In fact, a born-again backslider is a miserable person. He or she is living a lie. Their sin, the sin they're participating in, is not who they are. It's not what they really want. And God won't let them be happy in their sin. There's no relief for them until they repent. Whereas look inside the heart of a heretic and you'll find a devil. You might have to push back some religious trappings and some theological pride. The devil might be hiding behind some self-righteousness, but the devil's there. A heretic never knew God. He was blinded by his own pride. 
He sold his soul to a lie. The deception he now passes off as God's truth is nothing more than the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you're shooting a bow and arrow at a target 100 yards away, but if you're a fraction off in your aim, just a fraction, you can miss that target by 10 yards. A fraction off at the site can cost you 10 yards at the target. And the same is true spiritually. Just a little error on the foundational level can cause enormous deviation later on. This is often how a false teacher gets their start. They were from us, but they were not of us. A heart matter was not quite right. There was an attitude that they wouldn't let go. There was a failure to fully embrace a truth. And it didn't come out until years down the road. You can say they confessed Jesus, but they never possessed Jesus. And of course, there was a specific case that John had to be thinking of when he wrote these words. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Who was that but Judas? Remember, John was there the night Jesus broke bread with Judas. Together, Jesus and Judas, they dipped their bread into the sauce that sat in front of them. It was a gesture of friendship. Jesus was reaching out one last time to Judas, appealing to any slither of loyalty left in his heart, not to do the dastardly deed that he had planned. And it's interesting that it was John in his gospel that explained what happened next. John 13 verse verse 27 tells us, Now after the piece of bread... Satan entered him. Look in a heretic's heart, and what will you find? A devil. John is saying, Judas was from us, but he was not of us. In verse 20, John writes of what Judas lacked. He says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Here is a believer's safeguard against deception. It's the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, the pouring out of oil was a symbol of the outpouring of God's Spirit. And to each of us, the Holy Spirit has been given to teach us and to instruct us. Jesus promised all believers in John 16, verse 13, When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. God's Spirit is the believer's watchdog. He sniffs out lies and detects deception and protects us from danger. We need to trust and we need to listen to the Holy Spirit. Of course, the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes to us in two ways. There is the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit who speaks to our hearts. But there is also the book that the Holy Spirit has authored, the book we call the Bible. The Bible is the result of the anointing of God's Spirit. Peter explained its origins. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And I love how this dual anointing works in tandem. When I read the Bible, I sense an anointing in the text. The book itself is anointed. It talks to me. It's powerful. The words of Scripture can jump off the page and challenge me in unexpected ways. But I also sense an anointing on the text, an anointing that comes alongside me and helps me understand what I'm reading. I grasp things I had no business grasping. 
The Bible is the only book I know where the author promises to be there himself to help you every time you read it. I love the story of the man who spoke to two Mormon missionaries. The Mormons tried to convince him that Joseph Smith was a Latter-day prophet. The fellow asked him, he said, well, what did he prophesy? For if it's in the Bible, I don't need it. And if it's not in the Bible, I don't want it. That's exactly how I feel. The Bible is more than sufficient. For we have an anointing from the Holy One. And then John adds in verse 21, I have not written to you because you did not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. God had preserved John's life so that he could combat a dangerous heresy that would become a great threat to the church. John dealt with the seeds that later sprouted into Gnosticism. We'll learn more about the Gnostics as we go along, but for now let me say, they were deceptive not just in their teachings, but in how they postured. They built fanciful tales and intriguing theories. They claimed to have special knowledge. Supposedly, they were privy to secret truths that other men lacked. They were the spiritual elitists. If Pew Research had interviewed a Gnostic, they would claim to be spiritual but not religious. His spirituality was untethered to God's truth. A Gnostic might have an affinity for Christ. Oh, I like Jesus. But then express their spirituality by mixing it with paganism and mysticism and superstition. And John encourages his flock not to be intimidated by such nonsense. He writes to them, you know the truth. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise or back you off the truth. He says, and no lie is of the truth. See, this is what the false teachers of John's day were doing. They were serving up lies in appealing presentations to look like the truth. John is saying, no one eats a poisonous stew just because it's served in a fancy bowl. Don't buy the lie, even if it's couched in appealing words and fancy lingo. No lies of the truth, he says. We've all heard folks who use the latest terminology, oh, hip language. They can spin a phrase. They sound so smart, yet they say nothing of substance. John says, you know the truth. You know better. Don't be intimidated by a slick talker or a spiritual bully. And then John mentions the big lie that was being floated in his day, which remains the big lie today. Verse 22. For who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Author John Phillips writes of this verse, Some lies are mere factual errors, but other lies reveal the utter rot and decay of the innermost soul. It's one thing to be misled or confused over a detail of theology. Thus we can hold various views on the end times, and disagree on the security of the believer, and vary on how we see spiritual gifts, and parse certain verses differently, and still be on the Christian team. But no matter how sweet and nice a person you happen to be, if you attack the deity of Jesus, and the eternal equality between the Father and the Son, then you are Antichrist. 
I don't care if you have Christian or Christ in the name of your church. If you deny he is the only Savior, you are spewing a lie that originates in the pit of hell. You are not on the Christian team. As John said earlier, deny Jesus and you might have come from us, but you were not of us. In other words, for a time you shared our company, but never our birth. To deny the true identity of Jesus is not just an error in our thinking. It's the unveiling of a deep, dark rebellion. This is the lie that springs from a diabolical, evil heart. To reject Jesus as Christ, as King, makes a person not the Antichrist, but an Antichrist for sure. And John is telling his readers not to get suckered. They know the truth and they have the anointing. God's Word and God's Spirit agree on the nature of Jesus. So don't cave in to the lie. For man or woman denies the Son of God, he has denied God the Father. For whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. John is saying, don't be swayed by these nouveau, avant-garde forms of spirituality. Don't dabble in spirituality that isn't grounded in the truth that comes from God's Spirit and God's Word, which you've heard from the beginning. In short, are you really going to let Oprah determine your spiritual eternity? Some people have turned in their Bible the book that's made sense and saved souls and brought peace for 2,000 years for a 50-cent self-published paperback written by some guy who's been married to three women just because it sounds hip. Don't fall for that kind of deception. If you're an Oprah fan, and I won't call for a show of hands, but if you're an Oprah fan, you'll recognize the name Deepak Chopra. He's a Hindu. He's a holistic health guru. He's authored 84 books for what it's worth. He's the spiritual guide to Oprah and Lady Gaga and a host of other celebrities. Recently, the Wall Street Journal reported on a seminar that Chopra did for the Columbia Business School. Around 65 students were meditating with their eyes closed while Chopra encouraged them, bring your awareness into your heart. Ask, who am I? Then he summoned a Hindu goddess and asked the students to diagram their soul profile, whatever that means. Chopra believes that everything is one and the divine is within us. It's spirituality without dogma and doctrine. To Chopra, truth doesn't exist, nor does it even matter. And while Chopra is in downtown New York selling his pop-sounding 21st century version of New Age Hinduism, what's happening on the other side of our real world? Real Christianity, faith in Jesus and in the Bible is exploding in the largely Hindu country of Nepal. For there, Chopra's Hinduism, stripped of its glitz and glamour, is being rejected hands down as a vain and empty religion, an empty spirituality, and people are embracing the truth of Christianity in record numbers. 
1961, Nepal had 458 Christians. Today, there are over 3 million. It testifies to the fact that it is not enough, friends, to be spiritual if your spirituality isn't tied to the truth of God's anointing. People today are looking for ways to express their spirituality without the constraints of truth and error. Oh, just be free to be spiritual. That's the way. But John has different advice. He encourages his flock to hold on to the truth they've heard and learn from the beginning, from the mouth of Jesus himself. The problem isn't that the truth from Jesus didn't work. It's that you've never really worked at taking it seriously. There's an old saying that applies to today's seekers. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. My job as a pastor is not to be novel and creative in my interpretations. It's to take the timeless truths of God's Word and communicate them to you in timely ways. In the words of the old hymn, Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away by noon. That's why we need constant reminders of God's Word. And John writes in verse 25, And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Recall shortly after Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000, it dawned on the masses that he wasn't just a meal ticket, that his miracles served a purpose other than just filling their stomachs. That's when the crowds that followed him began to disperse. And Jesus asked his disciples that they were going to leave him too. It was Peter who had the memorable reply, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. No one else but Jesus could guarantee eternal life. And remember this eternal life that we've been promised. It's not just longevity of life. It also speaks of a quality of life. For Jesus puts his Holy Spirit in you. Your life swells with his resources. He lives out His love and His joy and His power in His life in you. His smile shows up on your face. His laugh is heard in your voice. His love bubbles up in your heart. His compassion flows through your hands. His strength is seen in your stand. Eternal life doesn't begin when we die. Eternal life begins the moment you give your whole heart to Jesus Christ. For these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And when John says you do not need that anyone teach you. He's not saying that teachers are of no value. According to the New Testament, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that of teaching. Christians need good Bible teachers. But it's ultimately God's Spirit that works through a good Bible teacher so that you don't need any one particular teacher. You see, the false teachers of John's day claimed that without them, without their special knowledge, you could never know the truth. No way. The Spirit is our teacher, but He speaks through various voices. 
John had great confidence in the power and abilities of the Holy Spirit to help Christians discern truth from error and to grow up in the knowledge of God's Word. Think of it. God could have set up one church or one official to be the official arbitrator of divine truth. That's not what he did. Rather than entrust the ongoing interpretation of his word to an institution or to a priest or to a pope, he gave every new generation and every individual Christian his Holy Spirit. God conveys his truth through an anointing that is available to every one of us. And it's a good thing. Look at the church and Christianity throughout the centuries. It's been rescued from countless heresies. And God's truth has been safeguarded, not by the faithfulness of one sect or of one office or of one denomination, but by the Spirit's anointing. For whenever orthodoxy has been threatened, it's the Holy Spirit in God's people that stirs up a revival which brings the needed correction and God's truth back into focus. Whenever God's message has been distorted, the author himself, through his people, has restored the right interpretation. If anyone tells you that you can't really understand the Bible unless you hear their thoughts or read their literature, beware, your cult alarm should be buzzing. Here John tells us, that we all ultimately need to gra- we all can ultimately grasp the word of god through the spirit of god good bible teachers can be helpful <laughs> but they can also be wrong and this is why god doesn't want us to put our trust in any human teacher but in the holy spirit in the holy spirit that includes this human teacher and god puts this anointing in our hearts Don't always read the scriptures through the grid of what you've been taught by someone else. Let the Spirit speak to your heart afresh. He is our teacher. We need to put our confidence in Him. When we approach the Bible, we should pick it up regularly. We should allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us personally, for God promises He will. And then verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence And not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now here John comes full circle. He started the passage thinking of the return of Jesus. Now that's how it ends. We all should be confidently looking for the return of Jesus. No longer ashamed. Now abiding in Christ. And this is the ultimate way that you tether the spiritual instincts and longings of a human heart to God's truth. The ultimate attachment. The strongest connection, the surest way to tether a soul to God is to abide in Christ. The phrase abide comes from John's gospel. It originates in chapter 15. When Jesus compares our relationship with him to a branch on a vine. For it's not just a promise or an allegiance that holds that branch in place. It's an organic connection. The life of the vine flows through the branch. It is made strong by the same life flowing from one to the other. Spiritual fruit results. And this is the kind of relationship we need to have with Jesus. In the preface to his book, Abide in Christ, author Andrew Murray writes this. During the life of Jesus on earth, the word he chiefly used when speaking of the relations of the disciples to himself was follow me. 
But when about to leave for heaven, he gave them a new word in which their more intimate and spiritual union with himself in glory should be expressed. That chosen word was, abide in me. It's God's spirit in our heart, this anointing that John talks about that enables us to go from following to abiding. Oh, it's good to follow Jesus. You should follow Jesus. But you can follow a person from a distance. You can follow a person without any personal contact with them or even a conversation. And this is not the Christianity Jesus left us when he gave to us the Holy Spirit. Abide is now the operative word. Abiding implies presence and a closeness and harmony and familiarity in an ongoing conversation. This is the relationship that now tethers us spiritually to Christ. And John goes one step further as he concludes chapter 2. He says, tethering our spirituality to Jesus shows up not just how we feel, but also in what we do. For he says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. An old country singer, Paul Overstreet, had a song I liked. It was entitled, Seeing My Father in Me. The chorus goes, I'm seeing my father in me, and that's how it's meant to be, and I find I'm more and more like him each day. I walk the way he walks. I talk the way he talks. I'm starting to see my father in me. And I'm sure many of us have had the same experience. We catch ourselves doing a thing or reacting in a certain way, and we start thinking, wow, that was just like my dad. Where did that come from? And in essence, this is what John is singing. If we're born again by the Holy Spirit of a righteous God, it stands to reason that we'll end up living a righteous life. People should be able to see my Father in me. And this is John's big point. Yes, we're spiritual creatures. Yes, we were created with longings for more than just this material world. But our spirituality is not a ship adrift untethered or unanchored, just floating about on some transcendental sea. John says we need moorings. We need to tie off to the dock, and the dock is Jesus. According to today's text, here is how you and I can find anchors for our faith. Through the truth that we've known about Jesus, through the anointing of his Holy Spirit, through abiding in Christ and even through practicing righteousness. Let's be more than just spiritual. Let's be children of our Father.